So Habakkuk chapter 3, this is the end of the book of Habakkuk. And he ends it um, with a prayer and a song. We saw that at the, the end of chapter 3, the last verse, it says, For the choir director on my stringed instruments. And the beginning in verse 1, it's a title, the title of, of this song, just like the titles in many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. This is Habakkuk's response, his prayer in response to all of God's um, judgments and all of God's uh, words in the previous uh, chapters. We know that it, the last chapter ended with um, a rebuke of idolatry and the a proclamation of who the Lord is, that the Lord is in, the holy, in his holy temple and all the earth is to be silent before him. <clears throat> so this is Habakkuk's response, and this should be our response as well. Whenever we hear God's word and God's judgments, we should have the same response that Habakkuk had. And so this is what we have in verse 1. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shagayanoth. Now the last word, Shagayanoth, only appears one other time, and that's in Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verse 1, and no one seems to really know what exactly it means, but we do know that it is used in the title of Psalm 7. In Psalm 7 it says, A Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. And the rest of Psalm 7 is David um, asking the Lord to defend him and to give judgment to his enemies, and is a very serious and urgent psalm, much like the prayer of Habakkuk, filled with the judgments of God and fear and trembling before the Lord, and asking for God to come and to bring his judgments to bear. This is a similar, a similar song, so it seems like that word could refer to the type, the type of song, or perhaps the tune, or even an instrument. But either way, it is for um, a song that is uh, filled with trembling before the Lord. It says it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Um, we know that the Psalms many times are to be our prayers. They are prayers of, of the psalmist, whether it's David or someone else, or even Christ himself, a prayer to the Lord. And this song is the same, same way. We'll see this in Psalm 90, in the title of Psalm 90 as well, that psalms are to be our prayer to God in, to re, in response to whatever is going on uh, within our life. In Psalm 90, we see the title of Psalm 90. It says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. So Psalm 90 is a, is a psalm in the book of Psalms that we sing, but it's a prayer. It's the prayer of Moses. It's Moses' prayer to God and asking God many things and declaring the, the Lord to the Lord who he is and revealed in his word. And we see there also that Moses prayed this and he is the man of God. It's the same thing in Habakkuk chapter 3, that this is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. We're not dealing with... Um, any prayer by, by a mere man in the sense of uh, an uninspired man, but rather the prayer of a holy prophet of God, one who has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, who's giving us the very words of God himself. And so we must pay attention. We must take heed and listen to this, this prayer and this word, knowing that this is how we should pray as well. It is not um, a typical prayer that we would hear in, in many circles, in evangelical circles today, um, filled with um, many uh, repetitions, uh, repetitions of words, thinking that God will hear because of the repetitions, and filled with much emotion and vain emotion, not according to the will of God. But this is a prayer focused on the Word of God, focused on the Lord Himself and His judgments. Not many times do we hear prayers 
dealing with the judgments of the Lord. But this is exactly what Habakkuk prays. He prays for the judgments of the Lord and recognizing the judgments of the Lord. And so we must um, pray the same way. Whenever we come to whatever is going on through our life, whether it's distresses and trials, um, whatever it is, we know that this world is filled with sin. And we know from God's word that his judgment will take place. And so this should be our response as well, that we should pray um, for God's judgment and in light of God's judgment, knowing it is true, it is real, it is certain, and it will take place. And so we have here an inspired prayer, an inspired song to give us wisdom on how we should pray and how we should sing to the Lord. So that is the title of, of the song of Habakkuk, of his prayer. And then in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2 of Habakkuk, we have his introduction, how he introduces this prayer, how he begins it. And again, this is very different from many prayers that we see that we have heard in the past. And how does he, how does Habakkuk begin his prayer? He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk sets up the theme of his song with fear. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. What report is he talking about? He's talking about the report of God's dealings in the world earlier in, in this book, as well as the other books of the, of the Bible that have been written before him, like Isaiah and the books of Moses and the Psalms of David and others. He knows that God's word, that the report of the Lord is that he he will come and he will judge the whole world. Of course, in, in Habakkuk's immediate generation, God has promised that he will judge the nation of Judah for their sins. This is how Habakkuk begun his, his prophecy. God will judge the nation of Judah, and then he will also judge Babylon, the nation he used to judge Judah. And because of these things, Habakkuk hears this report. He sees these judgments that God brings up, and he says, I fear. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. This is the proper, godly, and Christian response when we know who God is. The Christian response is to fear the Lord. This is, again, very contrary to what we hear in, in most circles. We think of God as if he is um, up in heaven, just not even related to things in the earth, or as if he is um, a grandfather, or a boyfriend, or something like that, some irreverent um, thing of our own imagination, dealing out uh, prosperity to those who are, are um, very emotional and things like that. But this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one where that we should fear. And when we are truly believers, we will hear the report of the Lord and we will fear as well. Um, the fear of the Lord is the gospel. It's not just um, a part of the law revealed in Mount Sinai. The, the fear of the Lord is actually the beginning of the, of the very gospel that we believe in in order to be saved. But it's tempting to think that the uh, fear of the Lord is something only in the law, but rather it is a part of the gospel itself. And let's, let's turn to some passages to see that. Uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2.
And in Philippians chapter 2, we'll turn to verse 12. Philippians 2.12 says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, and not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The salvation that we have in us is from God himself. And why should we fear and tremble? He tells us in verse 13 why we should have fear and trembling. Because the reason why it says, for it is God. The for there in verse 13 of Philippians 2 is, is telling us the reason. It's a purpose uh, statement that the reason why we should fear and tremble, it's because God is the one who is at work in us. Many people think that because God is the one who's at work in us that we can live an easy and breezy life. But that is not what uh, Paul is saying by the Spirit here. He's saying because God is the one who is at work in us, both willing and working for his good pleasure, then we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The infinite God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who is all-knowing and omnipresent, who is self-sufficient and self-existent, the one who created us out of nothing, he is the one who is at work in us. This is why we should fear. We are not dealing with some pagan false god, something that is of this creation. We are dealing with the very God who created all things, the one who gives us our life and breath and everything, the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. And so because of that, we should obey, and we should obey with much fear and trembling. He says that this is working out our salvation. It's not talking about um, an optional thing to do as if if we, we get saved and then if we want to, we can have fear and trembling in order to further our Christian life. No, this is our very salvation. It is tied to fear and trembling. We must have fear and trembling. Otherwise, we do not have salvation. The greatest trait that a Christian has, a true believer in Christ, the elect, is one who fears the Lord. And we will see this in many other passages. Let's turn to another one. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18. Paul is going to discourse on the wisdom of God. And we know that the gospel is indeed God's wisdom. But the wisdom of God comes from the fear of the Lord. So first Corinthians one, chapter one, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It says in verse 24 that, But to those who are the called, that is the elect, 
whether Jews or Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, who is our salvation, those who are being saved, see that Christ is the very wisdom of God. We all want wisdom, but wisdom can come only through Christ. And so we must acquire wisdom if we are going to be saved. The foolish, those are the ones who are cast into hell. Those are the ones who are judged. The foolish are those who reject the will of the Lord, who reject the Lord and his word. But the wise, the wise are the ones who submit to the foolishness of God, which is the cross, who submit to God's word, which is wiser than the wisdom of this world. Christ is the wisdom of God. We must have Christ if we are to be saved. And so we must have wisdom in order to be saved. But how do we acquire wisdom? What does the Bible say about acquiring wisdom? And how do we, how do we obtain wisdom? We know this from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 tells us how we are supposed to get wisdom. It does not come from emotional, uh, motivational speeches. It does not come from the psychology, modern secular psychology. It does not come through contemplation of nature. Wisdom comes through one thing and one thing only, according to God's word. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. What we are talking about is the gospel itself. If we are to believe the gospel, we must have the fear of the Lord. The gospel is the knowledge of God. It's the wisdom of God, the power of God for salvation. And only fools despise the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. But what is the Lord's instruction to us? The Lord's instruction is to fear the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord that gives us the wisdom of Christ that gives us salvation. We must have the fear of the Lord. Christ himself says this in Proverbs chapter 8, a, a prophecy of, of Christ speaking. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 12. Proverbs 8, verse 12. Says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. This fear of the Lord is what directs us. It's what guides us through um, this life to hate evil. We cannot be um, God's people if we love our evil ways, if we love our sin. So in order for us to show that we are true believers, we must hate the, our evil deeds. We must hate our evil deeds and put them to death. And we will also hate the evil deeds of others. And that is all coming from the fear of the Lord. If we fear the Lord, we will hate evil. And if we do not hate evil, it shows that we do not fear the Lord. If we love sin, if we play fast and loose with sin, if we wink at sin, it shows that we love sin and that we do not have the fear of the Lord. And if we do not have the fear of the Lord, we have no wisdom and we will be judged with the rest of the foolish world. For the foolish world is, will, will be judged, guaranteed. It is for certain and again, to prove that this, this fear of the Lord is the gospel, and it's not just uh, at the law, uh, just from the law of Mount Sinai, but it is also uh, in the New Testament, it's in the gospel. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Many times we think that fearing God is something only in the Old Testament, but that is not the case. It is 
throughout all, all ages. In order to be saved, we must fear the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 18. Hebrews 12, 18 says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And if we stop there, we might think that, well, the fear is only at Mount Sinai, when, when they came to Mount Sinai and it was uh, trembling and filling with smoke, that, that was in the Old Testament. That's the law. That's the Mosaic Covenant. That's not for us anymore. We come to Mount Zion. There's no fear in Mount Zion. But we must keep reading in verse 25, Hebrews 12, 25. He says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." Our God is a consuming fire. He says in, the, in verse 25 that how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns in he from heaven? If they feared him who warned on earth, then how much more should we fear the one who warns from heaven? He, he is not shaking only the earth, as it says in verse 26, but he is shaking also the heaven. He's shaking all created things. And if we are not careful, we will be among those things that are shaken and will not remain. But we must um, look for the kingdom which cannot be shaken and therefore show gratitude. And how do we show gratitude? We offer to God an acceptable service, a sacrifice, as it says in Romans 12, with reverence and awe. This reverence and awe is not just mere um, uh, honor, but it is fear, fear of God. If we do not fear God, we do not have proper reverence and awe. If we, if we pretend that we can have reverence and awe without the fear of the Lord, then we are fooling ourselves because even those who say this, who say that they have reverence and awe for God and that the fear of the Lord just means to have reverence and awe because that is what they say, they don't even have reverence and awe for the Lord. They do not offer to God an acceptable service or an acceptable sacrifice. They treat the Sabbath day as unholy. They, they wink at sin. They do not um, obey the Ten Commandments and they despise it. They do not show proper reverence and awe to the Lord anyway. The only way to show proper reverence and awe is to know that our God is a consuming fire. When a fire is coming, when we know that a fire is coming, a wildfire or one in our house, do we not fear? Do we not fear and run away as fast as we can? How much more should we fear when we know that our God, the one who created all things, is a consuming fire? Not just a little fire like in a candle, but a consuming fire, one that consumes all things in its path. This is the one that we must fear. We know that in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve uh, sinned against the Lord and they ate of the fruit, 
we can know that they did not fear the Lord. If they had feared the Lord, they would have obeyed his command. But they did not obey his command. Instead, they disobeyed and they feared the word of Satan instead. They heard the words of the serpent and believed him and feared him instead of fearing the one who created them and spoke to them. If they had, if they had feared God, they would have trusted and believed God's, uh, God's words when he promised judgment against them. Let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 2 to remind ourselves of this judgment that God promised. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. After he created the man and the woman, or the man and placed them in the garden, he spoke to the man, and he was supposed to speak this to the woman after she was created. God spoke this, this words, this covenant that he made with Adam. He says in Genesis 2, 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. This is absolutely certain. There's no confusion, no doubt. that, And the command is clear. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if they do, it is certain they will surely die. It is absolutely certain. God's judgment will come to pass. When God speaks... It happens. It is. It occurs. It will come to pass. And we know this from the rest of the earlier parts of Genesis when he created all things. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke and it was done. By his very will, all things came into being. So we can rest and be assured and know that when he says uh, something will occur, then it will for certain happen. If he says that we will surely die, then we know that it is true. It is certain. It is bound to happen. We will surely die. For God is the one who spoke. Yet what did, the, um, what did Adam and Eve do in Genesis 3? They believed the word of Satan. Uh, Satan says this to the woman in Genesis 3, 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He directly contradicts, after his scheming and his, his uh, serpentine ways, he directly contradicts the word of the Lord and says, You surely will not die. We have a direct contradiction. God is saying, you surely will die. The serpent is saying, you surely will not die. They are mutually exclusive. They, are, they cannot both be true. One is right and one is wrong. And what is their response? What do the woman and Adam do? In verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. They did not fear the word of the Lord. They did not truly believe and trust that God's word is true and is certain, that he would bring judgment upon them, that they would surely die. Instead, they feared Satan himself. They feared the words of the serpent and believed his words, that they surely will not die. She thought it was a delight to the eyes and desirable to make her wise. She thought it was good to eat the fruit because they did not fear the Lord. Yet after they did sin, they did have some fear in that they, they hid from the Lord. But that is, again, not a true and proper salvific fear of the Lord, but that is a running away from him, a hiding from him. But we cannot hide from the Lord. Though we, we do fear in an in a unbelieving sense, though the wicked do fear the Lord, and that when Christ appears, they will hide under rocks and mountains and, and try to hide from the Lamb. 
but they will not be able to, and Christ will bring judgment upon them. And that is not a salvific fear. That's not the fear that we're talking about. We are talking about the fear that brings salvation and wisdom that comes to the Lord with repentance, which can only be a gift from God. We know that God's words are true, that they are, the word of the Lord is like silver uh, tried in a furnace seven times, as it says in uh, Psalm 12. Uh, verse 6. God's word is like silver, which is tried. When you try a metal, it is proven, and it shows to be true, especially if you try it as many as seven times, the perfect number. Well, the word of the Lord is like that. It is true, it is tried, it is tested, it is proven, and it will come to pass. For us to have the fear of the Lord and to believe the gospel, we must believe that God's judgments are true and are certain, and they will come to pass. We must believe these things. And if we do not believe these things, we will not be saved. And we show that we do not believe these things when we um, sin against the Lord. Anytime that we sin, we are showing that we do not fear the Lord in that moment if we're true believers. And if we're unbelievers, then we will never fear the Lord. We will always um, rebel against him and show no fear. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 10 to show that the fear of the Lord is something that God is due. It's something that is very honoring to the Lord. We, mu- we should not shy away from this doctrine that we are to fear the Lord, but we should embrace it and love it, knowing that it is our salvation, it is good, and it is something that God deserves and it is his due. Jeremiah chapter 10. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 10, and he's going to speak against the idolatry uh, of all the nations and show that we must fear the one who actually made all things, not the false gods who, who can do nothing. Jeremiah 10, verse 1, says, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. We'll pause here and see that the the false gods of the nations, we see their foolishness. They're terrified by the signs in the heavens. They're terrified by these false gods, these gods that are cut from wood, from the forest, built by the the art and fashion of man, according to his image, instead of the image of God, they are making gods in in their own image. They decorate it with silver and gold and created things. They build up this God with nails and with hammers, and they set it and they try to fasten it and secure it so that it doesn't totter, because if you you, uh, nudge the idol, it will fall off of its its, um, altar. So they have to fasten it, make sure it doesn't fall off. Like a scarecrow, we put a scarecrow in order to scare away birds, and they can say nothing. This is exactly what an idol is. It's a scarecrow. It causes fear in foolish people, but they cannot even speak. They must be carried themselves. God is the one who carries us, but with idols, we must carry idols. They cannot even walk. And so God tells us, do not fear them. They can't do any harm, and they can't do any good. There's nothing that they can do. They are absolutely nothing. So who should we fear? Well, let's go on in Jeremiah 10, verse 6. He says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. 
Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz, the work of a craftsman in the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. The false gods cannot do any harm or good. Yet the nations, the unbelievers, the wicked are terrified of them. Yet they don't fear the Lord, the one who actually created all things. We cannot be this way. The true people of God, the elect, must not be this way. We must not be terrified by the things of the nations, but we must fear the Lord, the one who created all things, the one who created the wood that they make gods out of, the one who is the true God, as it says in verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He does not need someone to carry him. He does not need someone to to make an idol, an image of him. He does not need someone to fasten him onto an altar. He does not need someone to breathe life into him. He is the living God who gives life and breath to all things. And he is the everlasting king. And his wrath will cause the whole earth to quake and tremble. And none of the nations and none of the false gods can endure that wrath and that indignation of the Lord. And what does it say in verse 7? Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. We, God is due fear. If we do not fear the Lord, we are not giving him what is his due, and we are stealing from him. His, his glory deserves all fear from us, that we must tremble before him. It is what he is due. He deserves all people to fear him. And indeed, all people will fear him one way or another. The righteous will fear him and repent and be saved, and they will continue to fear him. But the wicked will fear him on the day of judgment when they are given their due, which their, their wages, the wages of their sin is death itself. They will die. They, just as they have been dead spiritually and they die physically, they will die an eternal death, and that is their due. But God is due fear. This is the one that we worship, the one that we must come to and submit to. We know that God is the one who gives us all things. And this is not just for, this fear is not just for the Old Testament. Let's, let's prove by examples in the New Testament that we as believers now, after the day of Pentecost, must also fear the Lord. Acts chapter 17, this is in um, Paul, Paul's uh, presentation of the gospel to the philosophers um, on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17, he is in Athens at the Areopagus, and men are wanting to desire, or desiring to hear his words. And so he proclaims the gospel to them. Acts 17, verse 30. After he presents the gospel, what does he finish it with? Acts 17, 30. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God is declaring to all men everywhere in all nations that all people should repent, repent of their sins. And that can only come from the fear of the Lord. And what do we fear? We fear because he has fixed a day, 
it's fixed. It's certain. It will not totter and teeter and fail. It is a certain truth that he will judge the world in righteousness. But who will he judge the world through? Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It is Christ himself. Christ is our judge. Christ is the one who will bring judgment. Christ is the one that we must fear. Yes, Christ is the one we must fear in order to be saved. And we fear, the fear of the Lord is what gives us, um, or what leads us to repentance. Um, let's go earlier in, in Acts to see, again, further proof that this fear of the Lord is for um, believers in the New Testament. Acts 5. Acts chapter 5, the, we have the case of Ananias and Sapphira. After they, um, many people are selling their possessions and giving the proceeds to the apostles and laying it at the apostles' feet for the, um, the good of the poor among the church. We have Ananias and Sapphira doing the same thing, but with lies. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostle, at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, <clears throat> Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? And we'll pause there and say, would Ananias have lied to the Holy Spirit if he truly feared the Lord? If he feared that God was going to judge him, he would not have, have lied to the Holy Spirit. He did not, but he did. He did lie to the Holy Spirit by lying to everyone and keeping back a, a piece of the property for himself and lying about how much it cost, how much the price was that he sold it for. And what is the result of his lie? He, he, he died. He, if he had believed and truly feared the Lord that he was going to die for his sin, would he have done this sin? If he truly feared the Lord, he would not have. So let's read on in verse four. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. If she and Ananias had feared the Lord, they would not have lied to the Lord. They did not truly believe and fear the Lord that that, they, that God would strike them dead immediately when their sin was uncovered. If they had believed the Lord and feared him, they would not have done this sin. But because they did not fear the Lord, they were given their just judgment. And what is the result? In verse 11, and great fear came over the whole church. The whole church feared the Lord. This is a positive thing. This is a good thing. This is what the church should do. This is what the church should respond with. They should fear the Lord when they see um, sin being judged. Uh, moving on in Acts, Acts chapter 9. 
Acts chapter 9, verse 31, says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and continued to increase. Again, this is a positive thing. This is a good thing. And it is paired with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The fear of the Lord and the comfort and joy of the Holy Spirit are, are not opposites, but they go together hand in hand. We cannot have the comfort of the Holy Spirit without the fear of the Lord. Anything else would be a lie. But the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit go together. And this is for the church. The church is after the day of Pentecost. This is for us as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2 teaches us this as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you this tes- the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul here was with the people in weakness and in fear and in much trembling before the Lord, fearing and trembling before the Lord so that the fearing and trembling of the Lord is what caused him to determine to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If he was fearing man, if he was fearing the Corinthians, then he would not have spoken the word that could have caused Uh, that was going to cause much persecution. He would not have known nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, but he would have presented to to them the wisdom of the world. But because he had fear and much trembling before the Lord, he spoke to them the gospel and knew nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians 7 Again, showing that this is for um, the churches today, not just in the Old Testament. Second Corinthians 7, we'll start in verse 1. He says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Because we have promises from God, the promise that he will uh, dwell among us and walk among us will be our God and will be his people, Uh, Because he is our father, because we have these promises, what should our response be? Our response should be to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. We should repent of our sins. And when we do that, we are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We cannot perfect holiness and righteousness and putting sin to death without the fear of God. And in the same chapter, verse 15, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 15, He says, his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. The Corinthian congregation received Titus with fear and trembling, not fear and trembling before Titus, but fear and trembling before God, knowing that a man of God was among them and they were to um, show hospitality toward him and receive his word of, of exhortation. And then in Revelation 15, this is also, uh, again, for all people. All people should fear the Lord. And they should fear the Lord who is Christ himself. Revelation 15, 
verses 1 through 4. Revelation 15, 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So we see that this prayer of Habakkuk, this response to the judgments of God, is to bring about fear in us. Not fear of man, not fear of anything in this world, but fear of the Lord alone. And let's return to Habakkuk 3 and and finish the rest of the verse. Habakkuk 3, chapter 2, he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Because we fear the Lord, if we are truly believers, then we will cry out to the Lord to revive his work. And his work is nothing but the work of Christ, the redemption that is found in Christ. And because of the redemption that is found in Christ, we can also be revived. We need to be revived. We have original sin from Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, who did not fear the Lord, and we have been cast into uh, darkness uh, naturally and by nature children of wrath. And so we must be revived. And we ask for God to revive us and to revive His work in us. And it is only uh, through Christ Himself that we can have this. Let's turn to 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 one passage in Hosea chapter 6 to show that this reviving, it's the same word that he uses in Habakkuk. Um, this reviving is what we desire and what we long for, and it happens and it occurs only through Christ. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. In our sin, we are dead in our uh, trespasses. We're dead in our transgressions before the Lord. We need to be revived and raised up, and we need to live before him. And the only way that is possible is if we are revived in Christ himself. The one who who gave up his own life, uh, died and was buried and was raised up on the third day. He is the one who who revives us. And because of his work, we can know and trust that when we pray, asking God to revive us, um, he will accomplish it and he will make us live again uh, through Christ. At the end of Habakkuk 3.2, it says, In wrath, remember mercy. We know that, again, in, in Habakkuk's generation, God is bringing about wrath upon the nation of Judah. And today we have many trials and persecution, that there is God's wrath upon this world. And so we ask God to remember mercy. This is not mercy for the wicked, but this is mercy only for the elect. For the wicked, there is wrath. But for the elect, for those whom God has chosen to eternal life, God will show mercy. But we know that it is through many trials and persecutions. So let us look to a couple passages to show that, that it must come through trials and persecutions. Uh, Romans eight seventeen. 
when we experience all of these trials and the judgments of God among the nations in the world, there have been many judgments, and we know that the, the final judgment is coming, we can ask God to remember mercy and trust that he will remember mercy for us who truly believe, who fear him. Romans eight seventeen. Uh, let's actually start in verse uh, 16. Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God's wrath is being shown in this world in many judgments, and the, the final judgment um, indeed will occur. And so because of that, we encounter various trials, but we must suffer with him. We must suffer with Christ as he suffered so that we, will, we can be glorified with him. If we want the mercy of God, we must fear the Lord and suffer with Christ. Uh, another one in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 12. It is, again, a promise of God. We are assured and know that sufferings and trials will come. It is certain. And if suffering and trials do not come, then we are illegitimate children, as it says in Hebrews 12. 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be persecuted. Those who are God's people will be persecuted. There will be many trials. But we must, in those times, fear the Lord, as Habakkuk did, and ask God to remember mercy and to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and steadfastness, as it says in James 1, 2-3. The trials that we experience, the wrath that we see in the world, should not um, cause us to, to tremble before the world, but to cause us to tremble before God. And if we tremble before the Lord, then we can also be assured that He will remember mercy because of Christ. He will revive us and give us mercy, even if... All of the things in this world fail and the mountains move into the heart of the sea. God's mercy will um, see us through and we will in, in, inherit the new heavens and new earth in Christ. And we'll finish with Isaiah 66. Again, the fear of the Lord is what gives us this assurance, this rest, this hope. Um, hope in the Lord that he will save us. Isaiah 66, 1, one through 2. <clears throat> Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, and we do not want to be foolish, but we want to have wisdom, then we must be humble and contrite of spirit, repent of our sins, and put them to death whenever uh, they become known to us. And that will only come if we tremble at the word of the Lord. If we do not tremble at the word of the Lord, if the word of the Lord has been spoken to us by, by God's people, and we do not tremble at it, it shows that we are not humble, we are not contrite of spirit. 
we do not have the fear of the Lord, and we will be judged. But if we tremble at God's word, if we tremble before the Lord, and we are humble and are broken over our sins, then we can be assured that his mercy uh, will uh, deliver us, and he will revive us in Christ. May the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Amen.